everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Warren, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and awarding our favorite films of each year starting 1928. We will discuss some brief thoughts on each film we nominate um, and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the oscargoes2.com. The amount of categories will also change and evolve times, sort of um, tie into the Academy's evolution over time. Um, my guest today is going to be Brian Lindsay. So, welcome, Brian. It's an honor to have a fellow Oscar fan on here um, talking about this year in particular. Thanks, Gabe. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to talking about the, the films of a landmark Oscar year. Yeah. So first off, um, how are you doing today? How's your day been? Today's been great. It's a, uh, it's a public holiday Monday here in Australia. And uh, so it's been a, a fairly quiet one and uh, just mid-afternoon here and uh, heading out later on this evening. How about yourself? It's been pretty good. Um, just finished uh, um, a writing assignment. Um, so, yeah, that was... It was, it's been fairly uneventful, but. Well, it's always good to have a, get yeah. an assignment yeah. done and get it behind you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to be talking about the films of 1956. And the question I always ask my guests is, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible? This applies to any film that was released in 1956, but was not on the reminder list of eligible releases for this particular ceremony, the 29th. Yeah, well, there's uh, two films that I'd like to mention. Um, they're both released uh, very late in 1956 and appear on the eligibility list for 1958. Um, one is a favourite. The other is not a favourite, but it's worth mentioning. Um, the favourite is uh, Robert Bresson's A Man Escaped, uh, which was released in France in November 1956, generally thought of as a 1957 film because Bresson won um, Best Director at Cannes in 1957, uh, appears on the Oscar eligibility list for 1958. And it's uh, just a masterful piece of, um, of filmmaking. It's made with such efficiency and, and smooth style. Uh, and he does so much with rhythmic editing and minimal sound and, and dark shadows to create um, this really um, beautiful and impressive piece. So if anyone hasn't seen uh, A Man Escaped, I, I would definitely recommend it uh, as one of the best films from 1956. Uh, that's not going to be part of our conversation. Um, the other film I wanted to mention is uh, an independent American film. Uh, it's called uh, Carib Gold. Uh, and I mention it because I think, you know, in the next hour or so, we're going to be talking about uh, what we have seen in 1956. And I think it's important also to remember what we don't see in 1956 and and that is lead roles for uh, for black performers uh, 1956 falls right in the middle of um, Dorothy Dandridge getting her nomination in 54 and um, Sidney Poitier getting his first nomination in 1958 and yet here we are in between and there are no lead roles uh, for black performers um, people like Louise Beavers plays a maid in in Teenage Rebel and you can't get away from it Bill Bill Sorry, Pearl Paley plays a maid in uh, uh, that certain feeling, but there are no lead roles. And Carib Gold is this small um, B-grade film shot uh, around Key West in Florida 
um, on a shoestring budget, released in Key West uh, in late 1956, then released in other parts of the United States in 57 and 58. And uh, it has a largely uh, black cast and playing roles that aren't um, the usual cliches uh, uh, for black performers. And so while it's not a great film, not one of my favourites, not one that I think you or your guest will mention uh, in two episodes time uh, in any categories, uh, it's nonetheless worth checking out because uh, it's something that deserves a bit more visibility. How about you? What what are your favourites that aren't on the list from 1956? Um, it's sort of hard to think um, about that. Uh, I have maybe there's some, but I don't know if I can answer that. Nothing is coming to mind. Well, that's cool. We can just dive into it. Maybe. Um, I guess I guess there's um the late period John Renoir film, uh, Elena and Her Man. I haven't seen it. Uh, Elena and Elena and Her Man. I haven't seen it yet, but um, it currently has a very good Ingrid Bergman performance, and um, I think uh, my uh previous guy Claudio Bet. Uh, Claudio Alves has maybe said some good stuff about this performance. So I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, I've not seen that one either. So uh, I'll have to add it to the list. So uh, I guess with all that, we can just jump into our nominees. And of course, the rulings that. Um, how we do this is um, we start with the last category, special effects, and with the first one, best picture, and we take turns announcing our winners with the guests going first. I'm going to take turns announcing our nominees with the guests going first. We'll wait sure. on the winners. Sure. So for best special effects, um, my five nominees are Earth versus the Flying Sources, Forbidden Planet, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and the Ten Commandments. The Academy, of course, chose the Ten Commandments. I've put it in there because uh, the, the special effects um, throughout the film, but particularly the climactic scene, um, you know, still, still impressed today. It makes it quite the showpiece with the parting of the Red Sea and so forth. Uh, invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, that scene where the blanks come out of the pods remains chillingly effective in its simplicity. Uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, just has everything, the stop motion animation, the suitmation with the miniatures and the glass plate inserts into live action footage. Uh, it's just an a amazing uh, combination of, of special effects. Um, Forbidden Planet, a groundbreaking uh, in, in its day, uh, really created a convincing sense of, of a futuristic world of advanced technology and uh, remains quite influential in its, its visual design. And then of course, Earth versus the Flying Sources is a, a Ray Harryhausen classic um, using stop motion animation to create images of flying sources flying over cities and crashing into famous buildings. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a treat. How about you? My winner um, is- um, Oh, my nominees, sorry, sorry. I don't know why I'm my nominees are Forbidden Planet, Moby Dick, and The Ten Commandments. I don't know if I've seen that Ray Harryhausen film you mentioned, whose name I, I'm forgetting now. Um, can you remind me, please? 
Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Um, that's one I haven't seen. Uh, maybe I should go um check it out. But yeah, my nominees are Forbidden Planet, Toby Dick, and The Ten Commandments. And I think each of them do an incredibly impressive job at their particular assignments. Just bringing to life these various creations. And even though they're dated by today's standards, they still look impressive. Um, just knowing where they came from. Yeah, they're certainly the best of the bunch. There's a, a lot of B-grade sci-fi uh, films from the mid-50s that uh, the special effects haven't stacked up, um, but these ones uh, certainly do. And um, next we have Best Film Editing. Okay, so for Best Film Editing, I have Diabolique, The Killing, Seven Samurai, The Searchers, and Somebody Up There Likes Me. Um, the, probably the one to really pick out there is uh, Kira Kurosawa editing his own footage for Seven Samurai. Um, it's a huge amount of uh, raw celluloid that he captured, and uh, he combined several techniques such as cutting on movement and quickly intercutting pans and tracks to give uh, the film such a visual style. Obviously, you've got the the non-linear strands um, in the killing, uh, definitely constructing uh an amazing film. The searches, uh, it's it's just classic um, in creating a, a great Hollywood film, um, really efficient and uh, effective of editing. And similarly with uh, somebody up there likes me, uh, draws the viewer into the action, the way it's edited and really propels the film. And then there's Diabolique, the French film, um, where Madeleine Gug uh, has a very restrained style. Uh, it's more about what she doesn't edit, holding footage as much as cutting it uh, and then editing very sparely, but with precision and great effectiveness. How about you? Um, my nominees are um, La Strada, The Searchers, Seven Samurai, Umberto Di, and Written on the Web. Um, with Umberto Di, it's classic neorealist. Filmmaking style. Um, this has been Toriyo to see because um, longtime collaborator Eraldo de Roma worked on it. Um, uh, who also worked on a lot of films by Roberto Rossellini. And it's just incredibly well constructed. The searcher is obviously legendary for obvious reasons. The editing plays such a big part in it. John Ford's longtime collaborator, Jack Murray. Um, La Strada. Um, well, I'm looking at the editor right now. Um, um, Bellini's longtime editor, Leo Contoso. Um, he does a great job. And then Written on the Wind, edited by Russell F. Sean Garth, um, plays into the melodrama. It's incredibly effective melodrama. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully constructed. Um, so next, um, our next category is original song. Original song. Okay. So my nominees for best original song, are the girl can't help it from the girl can't help it. The maladjusted jester from the court jester, true love from high society, Sarah, Sarah from hot blood 
And whatever will be, will be Kesara Sara from the man who knew too much. Uh, the last one was the Academy's Choice and uh, very well known, very simple, evocative, charming. It's a, it's a, a staple and a classic. Sara uh, Sara um, is a very energetic celebratory number uh, featured twice in the film. It really contributes to the energetic atmosphere of, of that musical uh, true love. Uh, again, ad- adds to the atmosphere, but, you know, with such romance to it. Uh, the Girl Can't Help It. It was a hit rock and roll song performed by Little Richard, um, intended for Fats Domino and not written in the rock and roll style, but it's played over the opening credits and again during the introductory scene for Jane Mansfield's character and really establishes uh, her her character. And then, well, the Maladjust Jester, it's uh, music and lyrics by Sylvia Fine, who was the wife of Danny Kaye, and uh, she contributed several songs to the film and it's uh, it's an entertaining homage to the Gilbert and Sullivan style and utterly perfect for, for Kay's uh, comedic genius. How about you? Which uh, songs did you uh, choose, Gabe? I chose um, Love Me Tender from Love Me Tender, um, an iconic Elvis staple, Girl Can't Help It from The Girl Can't Help It, um, the iconic Little Richard staple, Somebody Up There Likes Me from Somebody Up There Likes Me, Whatever will be, will be, que sera, sera, from The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Written on the Wind, from Written on the Wind. Cool, yeah, I wasn't sure about the um, eligibility of Love Me Tender because um, the music is adapted from a a, a pre-existing melody and uh, a sentimental Civil War ballad, and so while the lyrics are new, the music is is an adaptation so i wasn't 100 sure on that one so uh, that's why i left that one off my list it's certainly uh, certainly included in books like inside oscar as, as a film that as a song that uh, was overlooked but yeah i just wasn't 100 sure i wasn't sure either, um, but i guess i'll leave it now just see what else is there um so Next um, is best makeup and hairstyling. So best makeup and hairstyling. Uh, my five nominees are Giant, The Quatermass Experiment, Princess Yang Kui Fei, La Strada, and Written on the Wind. Uh, they're all interesting in different ways. I mean, a Giant has... Giant has that aging makeup, which uh, is always awards bait, and there's uh, plenty of it in the second half. Uh, but thankfully, it's it's fairly modest and and quite good. Um, and earlier in the film, obviously, the makeup to make you know Elizabeth Taylor and Rod Hudson just so totally radiant. Um, Quite a mass experiment. One of those low budget sci fi films where the face and body makeup for the surviving astronaut is so convincingly effective. Um, Princess Yang Kui Fei. Uh, it's striking period makeup and hairstyling. It's, it really contributes to, uh, to character. La Strada obviously is the memorable clown face up, um, clown face paint for Julietta uh, Messina. Uh, it's delightfully detailed and really emphasizes her natural expressiveness. And then there's Written on the Wind, um, the work of makeup artist Bud Westmore and hairstylist Joan Sinoja uh, contribute to the glamour and the artifice of Cirque's great melodrama. How about you? What were your choices, Gabe? My choices were The Court Jester, Giants, The Lady Killers, Seven Samurai, and The Ten Commandments. 
it was tough coming up with five, but I said all of these. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, there were quite a few choices, um, but uh, I know a lot of your guests um, on previous episodes get very excited when when you match five for five or four for five. Um, but I'm actually always, I'm actually more excited when we only match one from five because um, it just shows that there is such diversity out there and such depth of, of films and, and art and craft that's worth noting and worth discussing. So I think we only have the one match up there, but um, I think that's actually really interesting and, and really cool. So where do we go to now? Um, next we have best sound. Best sound, cool. Okay, so for best sound, uh, my nominees are Godzilla, King of the Monsters, The Killing, The King and I, the mountain and patterns. So patterns is uh, an extraordinary uh, low-budget independent film that uh, doesn't have a, a musical score. Instead, it just uses sound design uh, to create atmosphere using the sound of typewriters and photocopiers and footsteps and voices uh, in corridors to to create uh, a soundscape, um, which is quite extraordinary and, and very unique. Uh, the mountain. Um, is an adventure film that really uses detailed sound to immerse the audience in, in the moments of, of tense mountain climbing drama. The King and I, obviously that four channel stereo is just so incredibly rich. Uh, the killing, uh, those racetrack sequences where all those layers of sound are added on creating such atmosphere and tension. And then of course, the, the sound recording, mixing, editing uh, of Godzilla King of the Monsters was just critical to making those special effects involving miniatures and stop motion animation really come to life and, and be convincing. How about you? What were your choices? Uh, my choices are Giants, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Bobby Dick, Somebody Up There Likes Me, and The Ten Commandments. Cool. There's a category where we have no overlap at all. And uh, yeah, that's, that's super cool. Uh, several of those were on my list of, of ones that have um, that just missed out. Somebody up there likes me was was actually my sixth uh, choice. Um, those boxing sequences, the punches, the crowd, the ambient ambient sound—it's uh, uh, really really terrific work. Yeah, for sure. Um, so next we have best original score. Best original score, my nominees are Anastasia, Forbidden Planet, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Lust for Life, and Umberto D. So in Anastasia, there's that wonderful rich theme by Alfred Newman, uh, which has both the sweep and the heartbreak. It's perfectly suited to this ridiculous romantic soap opera. Um, Forbidden Planet is the work of B.B. Barron and Louis Barron, uh, the husband and wife team who are pioneers in the field of electronic music. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is such an energetic score, considerably assisting to the film's atmosphere and pace. Lust for Life, uh, a potent score, evocative, stirring, really matches the intensity of Douglas's um, performance and the emotional turmoil of his character. And then the score from Berto D, it's just a really wonderful piece of music. It's very simple, but it's mournful and uplifting at the same time. And uh, yeah, really, really, really sweet. How about you? What were your choices? 
my choices are Bad Seed, Giant, The Searchers, The Ten Commandments, and Written on the Wind. Cool, another eclectic mix. Uh, uh, Dimitri Tiompkin's score for Giant is, is a classic. It's a rousing brand score, really matches the film well. That was my number six. Um, so, yeah, it's great to, to hear you mention that one. So next we have um, Best Color Cinematography. Color Cinematography. So my nominees for Best Color Cinematography are Giant, Lust for Life, Moby Dick, The Searchers, and Written on the Wind. So Giant is well-celebrated, uh, Melor's cinematography. Uh, it's beautiful, the landscape vistas, beautifully composed character moments. Um, you know, Jet with his cowboy hat and the open-topped car, um, pacing out on his land and climbing the wind turbine tower. It's, it's a famous, famous shot. That um, beautiful moment with Elizabeth Taylor framed against the red velvet wallpaper. And, and another one where she's uh, speaking to uh, Rock Hudson from the shadows. Uh, Lust for Life, um, Technicolor is often so garish, um, but here the Metro Color is crafted uh, with a really beautiful palette. Um, it, it effectively creates period, place, and atmosphere and showcases the boldness of Van Gogh's works. Um, Moby Dick, another one where in an era of lurid Technicolor, Oswald Morris creates a deliberately muted color palette. It's very evocative of 19th century paintings and sepia photographs of whale hunters, and it gives the film a very somber beauty, which is unusual for the era. The searches, the striking camera work of Winton Hoch, uh, it's um, absolutely brilliant in terms of quality and composition, and then written on the wind. Uh, again, the, another great collaboration between Cirque and Russell Meddy, who uh, makes the bold and vivid colours burst vibrantly in Technicolor without them being lurid. Uh, his work really contributes powerfully to the tone of the film and, and its success. How about you? What were your choices for the colour camera work? My choices were Giants, Lust for Life, The Searchers, The Ten Commandments, and Written on the Land. Cool. Great set. We match quite a lot there, but yeah, it's impressive, timeless work, a lot of those films. Definitely. Um, so next we have Best Art Direction. Okay, moving over to Art Direction. My five nominees for Best Art Direction are Forbidden Planet, Giant, The Lady Killers, Lust for Life, and Written on the Wind. The, uh, the art direction in, in Forbidden Planet is just an absolute triumph of design. Uh, it's real hard science fiction concepts brought to vivid life and beautiful colours and a range of materials. And Robbie the Robot, uh, he remains iconic and, uh, and he is just the apex of the film's stunning visual creativity. Um, giant, uh, yeah, the production design there of those grand interiors uh, at Riata um, and the decor involved. Uh, reflecting not only the passage of time over the many decades that this epic unfolds, but also the changes in the family and the family's dynamics. Uh, often we think of Giant uh, for all areas, but the interiors of Giant are just so beautifully crafted. And talking about beautifully crafted, uh, The Lady Killers is just an absolute delight. Um, that set, that old-fashioned Victorian house, just full of 
quaint, frilly charms, um, but then all skewed at jarring angles so that none of the pictures hang straight. It's a really apt visual expression of the film's quirky, macabre humour, lust for life, uh, bringing all those Vincent van Gogh's paintings back to life in terms of period, place and atmosphere and written on the wind. Absolutely gorgeous production design, stunningly bold, vivid palette. Uh, it's just a crucial element um, to the heightened artifice of Cirque's stylized world. What were your choices, mate? Uh, my choices are... Oh, wait, did we talk about... Um, uh, I'll just say my nominees for our direction first. My nominees yeah. are Forbidden Planet, Giants, Seven Samurai, the Ten Commandments, and Written on the Winds. Cool. Uh, yeah, no, Sam, Seven Samurai um, was actually one of uh, one of my choices there that uh, I think came sixth or seventh. Uh, really convincing um, world. You know, the dark and fine interiors of, of um, the village. It's really, really uh, evocative and interesting. Um, I was just about to say, um, I think we forgot to do black and white cinematography and costume design. So let's uh, go back yep. to black and okay, white cinematography. Black and white black cinematography and next. Okay, black and white cinematography. My five nominees for black and white cinematography are Diabolique, The Killing, Seven Samurai, La Strada, and Somebody Up There Likes Me. Uh, Somebody Up There Likes Me was the Academy's choice, Joseph Ruttenberg. It's absolutely stunning, um, beautifully lit, sharp, gorgeous, uh, creates mood, really draws you into the action. And depending on how many films from 1956 you've watched, it's really interesting to contrast his work with the very bland cinematography on other boxing films like The Leather Saint, The Square Jungle and World in My Corner. Uh, La Strada, beautiful black and white cinematography, really capturing um, countless memorable shots. I mean, who could forget Julieta Messina waving from the back of the wagon? Um, Seven Samurai, groundbreaking work. Um, it was one of the first films, I think, to use um, multiple cameras to, to capture the act from uh, different directions simultaneously rather than lining them up in, in uh, sequences. Um, and he just creates so much in those action sequences and captures so much. Uh, the Killing... Uh, yeah, brilliant work. Uh, officially, uh, Lucien Ballard, but much of it done by Stanley Kubrick himself. Uh, very um, creatively lit interiors. And of course, the great racetrack exterior shots. And Diabolique, uh, excellent camera work by Armand Tirard, uh, whose style modulates with the, the needs and moods of the film. At times, it's very restrained and unprepossessing. And then at other times, it's really artistic and moody, uh, highly effective uh, camera work. What were your choices? Um, so, um, my nominees are Baby Doll, The Killing, La Strada, Seven Samurai, and Somebody Up There Likes Me. Cool, yeah, great, a great slate, um, great, similar to mine. There were a lot of, uh, really interesting choices, uh, to be made, um, that year for black and white cinematography. So next we have best costume design. Okay, best costume design. Uh, my nominees are The Girl Can't Help It, Giant, The King and I, Princess Yang Kuei Fei, and Written on the Wind. 
So Written on the Wind obviously has the gorgeous gowns designed for Dorothy Malone by Russell A. Gaussman. And in that colour and cut are perfect for the character and the tone of Cirque's films. And then there's that hat in the courtroom scene. I mean, what more can be said? Um, Princess Yang Kui Fei, uh, it's a lovely period costumes in really delicate colours. Uh, the King and I, Iron Sharaf, um, it's that dress, that gown that Deborah Carr swirls around the, ball, the ballroom in Shall We Dance is just an absolute triumph. Uh, giant, uh, memorable costumes really conveying effectively and efficiently the, the different worlds of Maryland and Texas and the passage of time from the 30s into the 50s. And the girl can't help it. Um, really notable amongst the bright, sleek costumes for Jane Mansfield by Charles Lemaire and his team is that figure-hugging red seminal gown in uh, which I think is really influential for the creation of Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit so many decades later. So what were your choices for costume design, Gabe? Uh, my uh, nominees for costume design are Giants, The King and I, Seven Samurai, The Ten Commandments, and Written on the Wind. Cool, yeah, again, another mention for Seven Samurai, uh, often for me coming sixth or seventh in, on my list. Um, some really notable regal outfits there for uh, Izao Kimura and uh, obviously the, the looted samurai armor look for uh, Mifune Tishore was uh, really terrific. Yeah, definitely for sure. Um, so next we have uh, best cartoon short film. Okay, uh, animated shorts uh, in, the, in an era that was um, really dominated by, by Warner Brothers. Uh, interestingly, they only submitted one short to the Oscars uh, and it didn't make the cut in the end. Um, they went with three from UPA Columbia. Um, but I think the Warner Brothers ones are just the ones that have the most character and charm. And I've, I've gone with three Warner Brothers and one others. So my nominees are... Broomstick Bunny from Warner Brothers, G Wiz from Warner Brothers, A Short Vision uh, from the United Kingdom, and Three Little Bops from Warner Brothers. Uh, so the work of Chuck Jones there for Broomstick Bunny and G Wiz, and the work of Fritz Freling for Three Little Bops, they're, they're three classics of the Warner Brothers uh, shorts. They're all available on, on YouTube. And then my fourth nominee is A Short Vision uh, bold adult anim animation uh, from the UK made with uh, poetic lyricism and uh, really fascinating visual style, um, which belies the sinister message about impending nuclear holocaust. Uh, it's very engaging, provoking, uh, and a real interesting historic curiosity. Um, so for those who haven't seen it, um, check it out. All four of them are, are worth seeing. What were your choices, mate? Uh, my choices are... Um... Um, I didn't do great homework here, so I just came up with three random ones. Chip, um, Chips Ahoy, In the Bag, and Pooh's Puddle Jumper. Yeah, well, Puddle Jumper is really, you know, really cute and entertaining. Um, it's uh, all those sequences of, of Mr. Magoo driving his car underwater, uh, um, just really endearing. And, um, yeah, it, uh, it was the Academy's choice and, uh, it's uh it's an entertaining one. Um so next there's best live action short film where I only have two nominees. Okay, well I, I have three. 
<laughs> my nominees are The Bespoke Overcoat, The Case of the Muckinese Battlehorn, and The Red Balloon. So The Bespoke Overcoat, um, an effective drama from the UK, uh, economically written, smoothly directed, um, really poignantly mournful ghost story, touching and beautiful uh, post-war British cinema gem. The Case of the Muckinese Battlehorn, um, was widely screened in the UK in 1956. I don't know it was shown in the U in US cinema, so um, probably wouldn't have been uh, eligible for Oscars, but uh, it's um, the absurdism of the popular radio series, The Green Show, transferred to the screen. Um, Peter Sellers and Spike Mulligan um, playing numerous satirical characters. And then The Red Balloon, uh, that charming modern fairy tale from France uh, that magically captures the imagination of a lonely, bullied child. Uh, it's a, just a timeless gem of cinema. What were your two? Um, my two are Bespoke Overcoats and um, The Red Balloon. Cool. They're cool. Definitely, definitely the two standouts of the year. Mm -hmm. So um, next we have Best International Film. Okay, best international film. Uh, it's the first time this was a competitive category at the Oscars. Um, they had a bit of a mixed um, eligibility, and so I've sort of gone with that as well. They were open to any film um, for any foreign language film that was playing in the United States that year. So, for example, La Strada, a 1954 release, but playing in the United States in 56, and then open to films from around the world released in their home countries in 1956. Um, and the Academy invited them to be submitted without subtitles. Um, and they made this selection. They actually announced, curiously, they announced the nominees for this category two weeks earlier than all the other categories. Um, and I thought, isn't that cool? Imagine if they did that these days with Best International Film. Uh, so my nominees are Aparajito from India, Gervais from France, a Girl in Black from Greece, Harp of Burma from Japan, and La Strada from Italy. So you've got Federico's uh, great masterwork, La Strada, simultaneously artificial and authentic, uh, Harp of Burma, a poetic, elegaic anti-war drama, uh, Girl in Black, the searing indictment of predatory masculinity, which is just crafted so powerfully from the ordinary and the innocuous uh, Gervais, a great uh, literary adaptation from France, and Aparagito, one of Sachet-Ray's um, Apu trilogies, the central film of that trilogy. And while the others are much more lyrical and, and, and have such sweep, this one is the one that uh, really grounds the trilogy for me. It's much more sharply focused on, on the relationship of character. What were your nominees? Uh, my uh, nominees are, um, I'm strictly going by films that are released in their home country in 1956, which means, unfortunately, I can't include La Strada, based on my own note, um, rules. Um, so I included Burmese Harp from Japan, The Captain from Copenhagen from Germany, and A Man Escaped from France. Oh, great. Well, I'm really pleased to hear uh, a mention for A Man Escaped. Um, as I said at the beginning of, of the podcast, it's one of my favourite from this year. Um, I stuck with Gervais. Um, it's, it's a film that I do also really love. 
and it was one of the Oscar nominees as the film that France submitted that year. And so I, I stuck with that one. But uh, yeah, great, uh, great to get a shout out for a manuscript. Are we so doing? Um, are we doing documentary? Um, no. Um, okay. Uh, next, we have best adapted screenplay. So best adapted screenplay, um, my nominees are Baby Doll, Diabolique, Giant, The Killing, and Patterns. Uh, so Baby Doll, Tennessee Williams reworking his own material for the screen. Uh, Diabolique, a fiendishly clever, brilliantly adapted uh, from the novel by um, Pierre Bellot and Thomas Naris Jack. Uh, Giant, uh, an impressive adaptation of uh, Edna Ferber's massive tome that wraps social commentary about race and gender into a sprawl of history, romance, and familial drama. Uh, the Killing, adapted from the novel Clean Break, um, this fashions into this memorable character piece with suspenseful plot unfolding like a clockwork puzzle. And Patterns, adapted by Rod Serling, it's a razor-sharp dialogue um, um, for thoroughly convincing characters. Um, it's a fascinating portrait of ambition and office politics. Uh, adapted from his own 1955 teleplay. How about you? Um, my nominees are "Bigger Than Life" by uh, uh, "Bigger Than Life," adapted by Richard Maybaum and Samuel Hume. "Giant," adapted by Ivan Moffat, uh, Ivan Moffat and Fred Goyle. Um, adapted by Frank Nugent. Teen Sympathy, adapted by Robert Anderson, and Written on the Wind, adapted by George Zuckerman. Terrific. Great set. Um, so next is Best Original Screenplay. Okay. For Best Original Screenplay, my nominees are Autumn Leaves, Forbidden Planet, The Lady Killers, Seven Samurai, and La Strada. So Autumn Leaves is a beautiful, um, sympathetic treatise on mental illness. Um, it was written by a couple of blacklisted writers and accredited to someone else. Um, but it's a, a really interesting uh, screenplay. Uh, Forbidden Planet, um, very, very um, loosely based on The Tempest. It's, uh, it is bloated by some tedious exposition, but uh, it is nonetheless full of fascinating hard science fiction concepts and some really interesting characters. Uh, the Lady Killers is just that in endlessly entertaining script by William Rose. Uh, it's constructed with precision and economy, um, providing wits with physical comedy. Seven Samurai, uh, again, a, an impressive blend of character drama with sustained visual action. I think uh, it was often said that uh, in Seven Samurai, it creates this outdoor action epic without losing the impact of character. And then La Strada uh, is that very Shakespearean road movie about a naive impish woman traveling with a brutish carnival strongman. And it's while the story rambles, uh, that in itself is part of its, uh, its symbolism. And it's just such an engaging character piece that, uh, uh, and so truthful that I really had to include it in this category. Um, those are all good selections. Um, my nominees are um, The Lady Killers, La Strada, The Red Balloon, Seven Samurai, and Umberto D. Cool. It's, you've, you've stuck with the, 
the Academy's curious choice of, uh, of the Red Balloon there, um, a short film, getting a nomination in a, in a screenplay category was so unusual and uh, it took away the Oscar, um, such a, uh, an interesting aspect of, of Oscar history. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful little piece, even though it's got hardly any dialogue, um, but the story is so strong. Yeah, definitely. Um, so next we have Best Supporting Actress. Okay, my nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role, Helen Hayes, Anastasia, Eileen Heckart, Somebody Up There Likes Me, Katie Harado, Man from Del Rio, Mercedes McCambridge, Giant, and Marie Windsor, The Killing. Marie Windsor was one of the queens of B-movies in that era. Um, she, uh, that year, made uh, Roger Corman's Swamp Women. And um, like Beverly Garland, she is usually the best thing about those B-grade films. And uh, it's really interesting to see her in Kubrick's The Killing playing um, a shamelessly manipulative performer. She's really memorable. Uh, Mercedes McCambridge, similarly very memorable for a, a role that is uh, constrained uh, in terms of character and also limited in terms of screen time. But she's she makes Luz immediately recognisable and understandable. And even though she disappears so early in the film, she uh, she's, lingers in the memory. Um, Katie Harado, very assured work. It's, it's beautiful. It's modulated, uh, very heartfelt. Um, it's uh, she really makes this taught Western very effective and, and memorable. Um, Eileen Eckhart, chosen by the Academy for her much more showy role in The Bad Seed. I think she's much better in Somebody Up There Likes Me um, as the mother of a petty criminal turned boxer. Uh, she's moving in and it creates a very shaded character um, and it's much less theatrical than her nominated work. And then there's Helen Hayes. Um, She's effortlessly commanding and, and quite surprisingly touching as the Dowager Empress. And she, when she appears in those handful of scenes with, with Ingrid Bergman, the pair of them manage together to turn really melodramatic nonsense uh, into something quite engaging and moving. So those are my picks. What about you? Um, my nominees are Mildred Dunlop and Baby Doll. Murray Windsor in The Killing, Anne Baxter in The Ten Commandments, Shirley MacLaine in The Trouble with Harry, and Dorothy Malone in Written, Written on the Wind. Cool. The, the Anne Baxter in Ten Commandments, that's one that, um, that's one that divides a lot of people. Um, some people find it really just bold and engaging and, um, you know, just really fearless, and other people find it astonishingly uh, unrestrained and just theatrical and chewing the scenery. Um, but uh, she certainly turned up in a lot of uh, lists in the year. I think she was um, one of the five nominees for Exhibitor Magazine's uh, Best Dramatic Actress um, in, in that era. So interesting choice, mate. Um, so next we have Best Supporting Actor. Okay, for best performance by an actor in a supporting role, I have Ed Begley in Patterns, James Dean in Giant, 
Leo Gen in Maybe Dick, Moby Dick, Anthony Quinn in Lust for Life, and Rod Steiger in The Harder They Fall. Uh, Harder They Fall. They Fall was Bogart's final film, but the acting honors really belong to Rod Steiger. It's a, a really modern feeling performance, um, very powerful characterization as uh, he's usually an actor of such fierce intensity. And, and that's what you get here. Anthony Quinn, the Academy's choice. It's a very brief supporting role, but he's just so magnetic um, and is really a uh, passionately alive performance. Uh, Leo, again, is, is beautifully measured uh, as Starbuck in, in Moby Dick. Uh, James Dean, uh, nominated by the Academy in lead, but his screen time and his uh, is so on the periphery to the main story that uh, I think he's better placed in, in support. Um, he's really memorable and effective, um, both as the, the outcast youth and as the drunken oil tycoon. Um, it's quite a character arc he's got there in limited time. And then Ed Begley in Patterns. Uh, it's a really sympathetic performance, uh, beautifully brought to life, a lot of um, honesty and a lot of modulation. Nice. Those are all the choices. Um, my nominees are Eli Wallach in Baby Doll, James Dean in Giants, Rod Steiger in Hardly Fall, Joel Briner in The Ten Commandments, and Robert Stack in Written on the Wind. Cool. Um, uh, really pleased to have a, a shout out for Eli Wallach. And um, I have one myself coming up. Just one second. My internet's freezing up, especially. Okay, there I am. Um, yeah. Um, so next we have Best Leading Access which is always the most exciting one. Well, it's, it's funny. It, yes, we always say it's the most exciting one and, uh, you know, the most interesting one and the best one, the one we're all looking forward to. Yet we always give the blokes primacy. Um, how about we go with best actor and um, we'll hold the ladies for that more prestigious higher rung on the march to best picture. How about we, uh, we do, right. do the guys first? All right. All right. Yeah, let's do sure. the guys first and let's give the women the more uh, prestigious highest spot. Yeah, so my nominees, my nominees for best actor in a leading role are Kirk Douglas in Lust for Life, Danny Kaye in The Court Jester, Toshira Mifune in Seven Samurai, Laurence Olivia in Richard III, and Eli Wallach in Baby Doll. You put Eli in, in support, but... Uh, I think it's a, I feel it's a, a three-hander and uh, he's such a compelling presence, intense, smoldering screen debut, uh, masterfully confident. Uh, Lawrence Olivia playing a villain rather than a hero. Um, he has a much less reverential approach to the text. He's much freer and his performance, uh, I think, is, is much more engaging, uh, plays with such relish and really holds the attention, even though the film around him does begin to fall apart. Uh, Toshira Mifune, uh, who's a BAFTA nominee for his performance in Seven Samurai. Um, originally, the screenplay only had six samurai, but Kurosawa and his co-writers realised they needed something to uh, bring the story much more to life, and they created uh, this roguish character and switched Mifune from a different role uh, to Kikuchio, and uh, he just animates the whole thing. He's so expressive and effusive. 
Um, he's exciting and unpredictable in a, in a film that is so controlled uh, and makes him really exciting. Um, Danny Kaye is perhaps his quintessential performance. Uh, he's got everything, song, dance, disguise, slapstick, tongue twisters, everything he was known for. And he carries this absurd spoof uh, almost entirely on his own. And uh, he's just delightful. And Kirk Douglas, uh, an astonishingly committed performance as Vincent van Gogh. Um, he makes this very generic script um, totally absorbing. What about you? I actually had to make some last minute um, adjustments, but I ultimately settled on James Mason in Bigger Than Life, Danny Kane, the court jester, Anthony Quinn in La Strada, John Wayne, Searchers, and Bashiro Mufune in Seven Samurai. Yeah, no, great choice with uh, James Mason in Bigger Than Life, um, a film that I hadn't seen um, before uh, preparing for this podcast. Uh, it's one of the ones that I discovered for the first time, and it's yet yeah, a really convincing performance. And he he is the one that makes that film's final act uh, as genuinely unsettling as it is. Uh, so, yeah, if anyone hasn't caught up with Bigger Than Life, um, definitely recommend checking that one out. Uh, it's a great performance from James Mason. So next we have uh, Best Director. Oh, best actress. We're going to back to the oh. ladies because I because I made you skip them. My fault. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's so, go to best actress. Yeah. So for best performance by an actress in a leading role, I have Carol Baker in Baby Doll, Joan Crawford in Autumn Leaves, Deborah Carr in Tea and Sympathy, Dorothy Malone in Written on the Wind, and Julietta Messina in La Strada. So Carol Baker, um, she has this quite unconvincingly written character which could have been just a shrill grotesque but she manages to fascinate and charm and elicit sympathy and she's just endlessly watchable. Um, Joan Crawford um, playing this older working woman romanced by a young man um, it's one of her best performances I think it's heartfelt it's vulnerable without the sort of the reserve and the acting mechanics that are sometimes evident with her work. It's certainly Crawford at her most sympathetic, I think. Uh, Deborah Carr, beautifully sympathetic again, uh, resists the role's theatricality and with lines that she'd said on Broadway hundreds and hundreds of times, she manages to appear totally natural and fresh and convincing. Um, it's heartfelt work and very delicate, unfortunately completely overshadowed by her uh, nominated turn in The King and I. Uh, Dorothy Malone of the film's quartet of stars, uh, she is the one who dazzles. It's a full-throttled performance. Uh, there's nothing subtle or restrained about her, just the way her character is. Uh, she gives in to Cirque's creation with total abandon and is totally aligned with, with his tone and everything he's trying to achieve. And... Julieta Messina, it's just an impressive performance that so beautifully captures the duality of Fellini's film. She's, she's allegorical and truthful at the same time, which is just an extraordinary achievement. How about you? Yeah, definitely. Those are all um, great choices. I actually haven't seen Autumn Leaves, but I'm a Joan Crawford fan, so I'll definitely give that one a shot. Cool. Um, my nominees are Carol Baker and Baby Doll, 
Simone Signore and Diabolique, Elizabeth Taylor and Giants, Julieta Massina and La Strada, and Deborah Carr and Teen Sympathy. Great pick for Simone Signore. Uh, it was that was my number six. Uh, it's one of her great performances. It's just wonderfully assured. Um, it's very relaxed and again a very modern performance. Um, and she just conveys so much about that character just through gesture and tone and posture. Uh, it's it's a very complete performance uh, and a really good pick. So next we have. Um... Best Director. Okay, for Best Director, my nominees are Henri-Georges Clouseau for Diabolique, Federico Fellini for La Strada, John Ford for The Searchers, Douglas Sirk for Written on the Wind, and George Stevens for Giant. Um, so the Oscar winner there, George Stevens, um, just brilliantly crafts that film with the framing, the shot selection, the editing, everything just works together just to convey this story with, with such, such craft. It's amazing work. Douglas Sirk, uh, it's his singular technique and signature artistry to bear on this sensational pulp material. Um, he just really commandingly orchestrates a soap opera that remains darkly tragic. Um, John Ford is one of the triumphs of his career. It's, it really is just brilliant form, symbolism, storytelling. Uh, his, his mastery of, of the form is just evident. Uh, Federico Fellini, it's just assured direction, uh, deftly striking the balance between, of tone between allegory and, and the humanity of the story. And then Clouseau, it's just deftly directed. Um, you know, you think of, of Hitchcock making this film, it would just there would be so much of the Hitchcock showmanship um, brought to the material. Clouseau takes a very different approach that's just as effective, it's measured, it's precise, it's highly effective. It's not nearly as showing, but it's incredibly uh, creepy and effective. Um, so those are my nominees. Who did you select? I went with Federico Fellini for La Strada, John Ford for The Searchers, Akira Kurosawa for Seven Samurai, Vittorio De Sica for Umberto D and Douglas Sirk for Written on the Wind. Nice, nice set. Very interesting pick. So we finally got to the other big one, Best Picture. Okay, so my nominees for Best Picture of 1956 are Diabolique, Giant, The Lady Killers, The Searchers, and Seven Samurai. I think I've spoken enough about all of them. So uh, what are your picks? Um, La Strada, Dino De Laurentiis and Carlo Quati, producers, the searchers. Um, there's no credited producer, so I'll just say John Ford, Seven Samurai, I think. Uh, I don't know if there's credited producers. I'm just saying the character of Sawa, Umberto Di, Angelo Rosi, Giuseppe Mosquera, Giuseppe Amato and Vittorio De Sica, producers, and Written on the Wind, Albert Zug Smith, producer. Cool. So how many? I've got two two out of five are foreign language films. How many do you have? You got um, two as well or three? Because you got Umberto D. Three. 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 Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a real surge of foreign language films getting nominated, uh, sort of getting released in in american cinemas in the mid 50s 
um, the rise of television, I think there was a lot of appetite for um, much more art house releases, things that had a sensibility and an aesthetic uh, that people weren't able to see at home uh, on television. And Hollywood, that led to these big, bloated, widescreen, three-hour-long Technicolor extravaganzas, but it also led uh, in cinema distribution to an influx of really interesting uh, European uh, and Asian cinema. Um, And they begin to turn up in the Oscars in things like the screenplay categories, and, and then in a few years' time, it's really, I think, on the success, the box office success of Diabolique, and Seven Samurai and La Strada that gives independent distributors the confidence to release those films separately. So Seven Samurai is, is released by Columbia, La Strada is released by Paramount, but you know, only a few years' time you start getting independent filmmakers uh, releasing their films in the United States independent of the studios, things like uh, Never on Sunday in 1960 and that's when they start breaking through in those bigger categories because they they back them for Oscars in the top categories like Best Picture and Director and Actress, things that in this mid-50s, when those films are being released still by the studios, they're not prepared to do. They would never have backed these films into Best Picture the way we have, um, but they certainly deserve to be in there. Yeah, for sure. Um Ah, so this was kind of a wild year. Um, um, I guess now it's time to get to our winners. So we start back with the last category, special effects, and then the first best picture. And um, we take turns announcing our winners with the guests going first. Okay, so for best special effects, um, my winner is Godzilla, King of the Monsters, uh, from the uh, a team of, of special effects artists uh, is that blend of stop motion animation, suitmation with miniatures and glass plate inserts. Uh, it's a really creative uh, blend of special effects and just creates this fascinating world. Mm-hmm. Um, my winner is the Ten Commandments. Um, it's just an incredibly charming and yet powerful re- um, recreation of several elements um, referenced in the Bible. And it just makes it look spectacular. And even if it's a bit dated by today's standards. Um, so next we have best film editing. So for best film editing, uh, my winner is uh, Madeleine Gug for Diabolique. Uh, as I said earlier, um, she creates this film by choosing when not to edit as much as when she does. She holds film. Um, she edits very sparingly, but very with great effectiveness and uh her, her economy is, is excellent. She allows the, the, the plan and the puzzle uh, to intrigue as the, build, the tension builds uh, without flashy um, uh, filmmaking uh, and assembly. So, yeah, my winner is Diabolique. With my winner, I go to 
The Searchers, edited by the great Jack Murray. Especially for that closing shot. Yeah, one of the most iconic in cinema. Um, so next we have Best Original Song. Okay, Best Original Song. Uh, I couldn't go past uh, the Academy's choice. It's Whatever Will Be Will Be, K Sarah Sarah from The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, Hitchcock wanted something memorable that a child could sing and uh, Jay Livingston and Ray Evans uh, really delivered. It's simple, it's evocative and it's charming and there's a reason why it has become a classic. For sure. Um, my winner, I go with also whatever will be, will be Kid Sarah, Sarah. From the man who knew too much. It's just uh, one of those perfect songs, in my opinion. So next we have we go to um, makeup and hairstyling. Okay, for best makeup and hairstyling, my winner is Written on the Wind, makeup artist Bud Westmore and hairstylist Johnson Oja. Uh, and as I said when we went through the nominees, uh, the the glamour and artifice of Cirque's great melodrama is captured uh, in the work of, of Westmore and Snowja, and I think is a key factor in, in Dorothy Malone's striking performance in particular. Yeah, for sure. Um, um, for, one, for my winner, I went with the court jester. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, great film. A lot of fun. Some great, great um, makeup and hairstyling there. So next we have Best Sound. Okay, for Best Sound, uh, my winner is Patterns. Uh, it's an excellent incidental soundscape in the complete absence of, of a musical score, uh, bringing all those ambient sounds of an office uh, together to create uh, a sound sound design. It's really unusual work, and uh, it, it's worth seeing uh, patterns for that alone. Uh, but then you also get you know great performance by Ed Begley as well. But uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating viewing. If you haven't seen patterns, check it out. Yeah, for sure. Um... And my winner of the sound is Moby Dick. Nice, yeah, really, really immersive sound design. So next we've got um, best original score. Okay, for best original score, my winner is Forbidden Planet, BB Baron and Louis Baron. Uh, the husband and wife team, as I said earlier, pioneers of electronic music. And for Forbidden Planet, they created uh, an astonishingly atmospheric score. It's really eerie, atonal music. Uh, it was groundbreaking at the time. And the music really also creates a soundscape for the film as much as, as a score for the film. Um, they really contributed substantially to the mood of the picture, um, helping to establish this sense of a futuristic otherworldliness. Uh, it's very, very 
very interesting. Definitely. Um, I ultimately went with Giants. Yeah, as I said before, it's it's one of Tiomkin's great scores. Uh, it's rousing. It's grand. It matches the the scope of the film so brilliantly. Uh, yeah, it's terrific work. So next we have best black and white cinematography. Okay, for best black and white cinematography, um, my winner is Joseph Ruttenberg for Somebody Up There Likes Me. Uh, he was the Academy's choice, and. Uh, while I'm, I'm so impressed with, uh, with, with the others in this category, um, I couldn't go past absolutely stunning work. It's, it's just beautifully lit. It's sharp. It's just gorgeous. Uh, really draws you into the action. And, uh, um, yeah, truly evocative. How about you? Um, I ultimately went with um, also somebody up there likes me by Joseph Rottenberg. Um, for all the reasons that you mentioned. Um, still need to do best color cinematography, though. Um, I'll go back to that. Okay, for best color cinematography, I went with uh, Winton C. Hoch for The Searchers. Um, as I said before, the, the quality of the camera work, but also the composition of shots, the majestic Monument Valley locations to moving close-ups, and as you mentioned, the celebrated final moments, uh, it's just such striking visuals uh, and couldn't go past them. Amazing. Um, I, wonder, um, I ultimately had to settle on Giants just to give Miller his first award for me. Yeah, very, very nice. Um. And um, next we have best costume design. Okay, for best costume design, uh, I've gone with The King and I, Irene Sharaf. Um, really, it's, it's that ball gown for Shall We Dance, which I mentioned before. It's just voluminous and yet light and full of movement and just gives expression of exuberant joy to both character and scene. Uh, I mean, all the work that she does in the film is interesting, but that dress is just such a standout. And uh, again, I couldn't go past it. It had to be my choice. For best costumes, I ultimately went with the Ten Commandments. Cool. Yeah, one of the uh, Oscars um, choices, Edith Ted and, and a very large team there, very colourful, very uh, dramatic costumes yeah it's just looking up the team right now um in addition to edith head there's also um hold on um just... so the full team is um edith head ralph jester john jensen Dorothy Jenkins, and arnold freeberg yeah, real collaborative effort. Yeah, for sure. Um, so next, we have Best Art Direction. 
Okay, for best art direction, uh, my winner once again is Forbidden Planet. Uh, it's just an absolute triumph of design. Uh, as I said before, beautiful colours, these science fiction concepts brought vividly to life um, and nothing exemplifies that better than Robbie the Robot. Uh, it's an iconic creation and uh, it's just the apex of the film's creativity and had to be my, my winner here. And my winner, I ultimately went with Seven Samurai. Very, very nice. Yeah, it's, as, as I think you said when we, we discussed the nominees, uh, just really convincingly creates this world of confined interiors and, and then this entire village, uh, which has been artificially constructed. Uh, it's very impressive uh, production design. And next we have best cartoon short film. Okay, for best animated short, um, I've in the end gone past the three Warner Brothers. I have to go with a short vision, and um, directed by uh, Peter Folds and Joan Folds uh, from the UK, uh, an engaging, provocative, um, anti-nuclear. Um, well, this, you know, it's it's a it's a cry against uh, the 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 nuclear threat um, that so many were, were conscious of in the 1950s, um, famously um, brought over to the United States by Ed Sullivan and, and shown on his show to, to such outcry that he showed it again and eventually ended up in cinemas. Uh, it is available on YouTube for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, it's a really interesting experimental piece of, of adult animation. And um, I ultimately went with um, Magoo's Puddle Jumper. Yep, matching the Academy, really charming piece. Um, so next we have Best Live Action Short Film. And for Best Live Action Short, my choice is The Red Balloon. Uh, as I said, when we discuss the nominees, it's just a, a timeless gem of cinema, um, just so beautifully crafted. And uh, my winner is The Red Balloon. Um, and I'm not sure how much I can say about that. It's just incredibly charming. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful little piece. So next we have Best International Film. Okay, for Best Foreign Language Film, uh, I have matched with the Academy and gone with La Strada, uh, even though it's a 1954 film, uh, was the Academy's choice uh, in its first year of having a competitive category, and, uh, and I've stuck with that choice. Uh, it's a touching, haunting film. Um, it's, uh, as I posted on, uh, on uh, Twitter the other day uh, when we were preparing for this podcast, uh, it's one of uh, Jane Campion's top 10 films of all time, and uh, it's uh, certainly one uh, worthy of, uh, of this award. But I know that you didn't have it on your list, so you're going to have something interesting to choose from. What yeah. did you pick? I picked A Man Escapes. 
Excellent. Well, from what I said earlier, you know how much that pleases me. So next we have best adapted screenplay. Okay, for best adapted screenplay, my winner is Giant. Fred Gill and Ivan Moffat adopting, adapting uh, Edna Ferber's massive story about the Texas family. How about you? What did you choose? Um, I ultimately went with written on the written on the wind, written by George Zuckerman. Very nice. It's a screenplay packed with so much. Yeah, for sure. Um. Next, we have best original screenplay. Okay, for best original screenplay, um, I actually went a little bit uh, off track here, and I, I just couldn't resist uh, giving an award to the Lady Killers. And uh, I think the script by William Rose is uh, such an extraordinary foundation for this film. It, this beautiful Ealing comedy, um, which, you know, delights with performance and design, but really the whole thing hangs on that screenplay, uh, that combination of, of verbal wit and physical comedy um, and just the way it unravels uh, in a, an escalating series of myth, mishaps and it's just a delight. What was your choice? My choice is Seven Samurai. Yeah, it's a very worthy choice. It was amongst my nominees. And as I said before, um, to create such a, an impactful action film without losing uh, such depth of character was, uh, was quite an achievement. And the screenplay is a huge part of that. Um. So next we have Best Supporting Actress. Okay, so with the Academy's choice uh, in my Best Actress field, uh, my choice for Best Performance by an Actress in the Supporting Role is Katie Harado in Man from Del Rio uh, in a, a film with a very wooden, uh, earnest ensemble. Uh, Katie Harado is just beautiful in this film. Uh, she just brings um, such a feeling of... of urgency to the material and uh, she's very effective and memorable uh, with with work that is uh, just convincingly detailed uh, it's beautiful and my winner is Dorothy Malone in Written on the Winds I just cannot pass her off she's incredible she's the best she is beloved by many, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about her in the in the questions section. Um. So next, we have best supporting actor. Okay, my winner for best performance by an actor in a supporting role is Rod Steiger in The Harder They Fall. It's a, a very modern performance. Uh, he ensures that his powerful characterization has a fierce intensity and he injects this production with urgency and relentless energy. Uh, he was also strong in Jubal and back from eternity. Uh, he had a really strong year and uh, the heart of their fall is one of his uh, most impactful performances. Who did you pick? I went with um, James Dean and Giants. 
cool yeah a beautiful beautiful work he he has such a character arc from from that uh outcast youth to the powerful drunken um tycoon uh and he pairs those two two ends together uh and makes it work very memorable um skipping ahead as as we did with the nominees uh if i may for best, best leading actor, actor. Yeah, so for best performance by an actor in a leading role, I've gone with Kirk Douglas in Lust for Life. Um, as I said, it's an astonishingly committed performance. Uh, he passionately conveys uh, Van Gogh's artistic inside, his emotional turmoil, his mental torment. Um, and he makes a very generic by the numbers uh, script, um, really absorbing cinema. For sure. Um, my winner is Anthony Quinn in La Strada. In my opinion, um, Bellini just knows how to utilize Quinn and allow him to um, to use his unique personality to his advantage. And he's captivating here. Yeah. Absolutely captivating, magnetic, absolutely magnetic. Um, so um, should we get to leading actress? Yeah, so for best performance by an actress in a leading role, I've gone with his co-star, Julieta Messina. Uh, it's an impressive performance. Um, she's, she has, it creates this moving character of surprising depth. Um, she combines her natural expressiveness with this delightful physical performance. Um, emotions flash across her face, often very broadly um, and completely unguarded, um, which I know uh, distresses some people who find it a, a very big, exaggerated performance. But I think for me, that's just key to jealousemia. Uh, she's honest, she's empathetic, and she's a wholly open person. Um, and everything would be just written on her face um, with with no with no restraint, um, for me she's just pure cinematic magic. So my winner is Julieta Messina in La Strada, and I am in the same boat. My winner is also Julieta Messina in La Strada. Very nice. Um. So next we have best director. Okay, for best director, I had to match with the Academy. I've gone with George Stevens in Giant. Uh, he just brilliantly crafts that film and just in every aspect, it all just comes together into, with such unity of purpose and such uh, coherence. Uh, it's, it's tremendous uh, craftsmanship. For sure. Um, I ultimately won with the great Akira Kurosawa for Seven Samurai. Yeah, great pick. Um, groundbreaking work um, in terms of cinematography, editing, uh, storytelling, um, really created a classic. Another and one of Jake Campion's favourites. <laughs> so next we have the big one, Best Picture. Okay, and for me, uh, my choice for Best Picture of 1956 is Diabolique. 
Uh, it's a film that's just brilliantly constructed. It's atmospheric. It's thrilling. And uh, for me, it is, it's a masterpiece and one that I've, I've seen many times and uh, I just never tire of. And uh, it's, in, it's an intriguing puzzle piece. And uh, that, that climactic twist, for those who haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it, um, but it is one of the most shocking in cinema history. And uh, so my, my choice is Diabolik. Awesome. And my winner is Seven Samurai, Akira Kurosawa producer. Yeah, as, as we've said, it's just an impressive landmark. A worthy <sighs> winner. Yeah. Um, so this caps off a year full of great films. And I'm glad yeah, that we were able to. You go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say it's it's an interesting year. I think you know, particularly for the Academy, it, it's. Uh, I think it still stands as the highest rating Oscar ceremony ever at fifty six million, which just is just ahead of the Titanic year when the population obviously by then was much much bigger. Um, but I didn't it know was. That. Yeah, and uh, it's it's the year the Academy has, uh, I think, the biggest correlation between popular and uh, and nominees. So I think the the five nominees for Best Picture has four out of five of the top five box office hits of 1956, and then adds in the number one box office film of 1957, which of course was released in late 56. So most of its money is made in 57. Um, that alignment between popularity and Oscars, I think uh, Oscar nominations, I think really contributed to driving um, that huge audience that year. It's, it's the first set of films that are nominated for best picture that are all in color. Um, uh, but uh, you know, we haven't, I don't think either of us have given any nominations to around the world in 80 days or friendly persuasion. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's interesting that, that those ones just haven't endured in the same way. Yeah, definitely not. Um, so questions, we um, had some questions, yeah? Um, first off, did we want to, um, did you want to talk at all about the actual Best Picture winner? Around the world in 80 days. Well, as I said, it's uh, the highest grossing film of 1957. Um, people absolutely loved this film. Um, it's a, it's a colourful travelogue uh, combined with an absurd comic adventure. Um, it really hangs on a plethora of exotic locales and celebrity cameos, which, you know, the audience loved to, to pick them out when it was released. Um, but it's dated so poorly um, for all this vibrant spectacle. Each vignette is, is so drawn out, um, making the film for me very overblown. It's very poorly paced. It's often cartoonish. Um, you know, this, this material should be a swift, exciting adventure full of tension. Um, but this film for me is, is just labored and, uh, and stolid and, uh, and just really a, a chore. <laughs> it's not one I enjoy. And um, 
I noticed that uh, earlier this year, I think it was, um, in fact, it was only last much, I think, um, last month, uh, Matt Singer at Screen Crush put out an article um, discussing the worst best picture choices in Oscar history. And uh, he brought Around the World in 80 Days in at the top, at number one as the worst choice the Academy ever made for best picture. Um, I wouldn't disagree with him. Um, I, um, I think the only one I have lower than it is Cimarron. That's the bar we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's they're usually there around the world in 80 days, Cimarron, Crash. They're, they're usually the ones that people cite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just... It's just so dated, and I guess you can sort of understand, object uh, like why it won, but none of that really shows through by today's standards. It just feels like an unfunny slog these days, and there's no reason it should be at three hours. No, no justifiable yeah. reason. Yeah, no, it should, as I say, it should be a, a swift adventure, but it's this sort of very indulged um, showcase piece showmanship. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, we, have much, we have much better picks and people should be watching the films that we picked, not watching around the world in 80 days. Yeah. Um, okay, so now... Um, we have questions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from Emily Bukowski Malik. In your opinion, what are the best two seconds from of films from 1956? Okay, well, um, I picked Diabolique as my best picture winner, and I said I wouldn't spoil it, so I won't. If you've seen Diabolique, you know what the two best seconds of cinema in 1956 are, and if you haven't seen it, well, then you need to watch it to find out. You'll know them when you see them. Um, I would, um, I would say, um, I think the scene seven samurai of Toshiro, uh, Toshiro Mifune, um, bowing. So mm-hmm. that's what I would say. Yeah, it's the second nice pick. Is yeah. it Shibasu? Yeah. Okay. Um. This is from Owen Daly. Mm-hmm. Um, questions about Dorothy Malone. Mm-hmm. Why is she the best supporting actress winner? Why is she so captivating to watch? Why does she outact every other actor off the screen um, in six films? Uh, well, I think for why is she the winner, um, I think there are numerous reasons why she's the winner. Um, she has some very practical reasons. Uh, I think she is the only uh, nominee on the Oscars list who's not in a Warner Brothers film, I think. Um, I think she's uh, Universal, International, and all the others are Warners. Um, And I think that helps. She also has the more substantial screen time uh, than the other four, which also helps. Although, well, Patty McCormack, she has very substantial screen time. Um, I put Malone in lead. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but she, I think she wins because she is just this vibrant 
she has this vibrant performance. The other four are all either small or downbeat, uh, whereas hers is just so effervescent and is just so captivating. As I said, when we discussed her earlier, she she leans into uh, what Cirque is doing with that film. Um, she really trusts him and uh, she, she rewards, she's so, uh, she's so captivating. And um, yeah, that's, I think that's why she's the winner. And that's, you know, as for why she's captivating, the, the, she's given captivating material. Other people I think could have been very um, exaggerated in that role. Um, and she does, she veers so close to cartoonish, um, but she's, she's not there. She somehow makes this, big melodramatic character um really effective and sympathetic and and interesting um and as yeah well act everyone else off the screen well yeah she does i mean lauren bacall yeah i mean lauren bacall is is has this pretty bland beige character in written on the wind i mean how can you uh how could you uh compete uh, with with uh dorothy malone she's uh yeah she's effervescent um, I do put her in lead, though. Uh, I know a lot of people put her in support, but um, I, I do think of, of that film as a, as a quartet. I know there was a, a recent Criterion essay refers to them as a quartet. I think that's exactly the right word. They were billed uh, equally above the title, uh, the four of them. Uh, from our perspective, looking back, it's so easy to look at Rog Hudson and Lauren Bacall as these big movie stars and Robert Stack and Dorothy Malone as much lesser players who largely had television careers. But at the time they were very, very much on a par. It was in 1956, in 1955, it was Robert Stack who was voted the sexiest man alive, not Rock Hudson. Uh, Rock Hudson wasn't in the top 10 stars of 1955. It's really the release of Giant and Written on the Wind that makes him the big movie star that we think of now. And interestingly, I, I did look up when I was looking up the, the Laurel Award winners from Exhibitor magazine, I found interestingly that they ranked the top film stars. They, they would do things in the July to June year. So for 55, 56, the 12 months prior to the release of Written on the Wind, Dorothy Malone is listed as the 13th biggest female movie star. And interestingly, coming in at number 14 on the list of biggest movie stars, one position below Dorothy Malone is Lauren Bacall, um, who we think of now as such a much bigger star. So the four of them are, are for me, um, a quartet of co-stars. I think Joey Gentile uh, says, you know, if you took this character out of the film, would it still make sense? And as a test for whether someone's a lead or support. And I can't imagine that film without Dorothy Malone's character. So um, I, I put her in lead, but yeah, for winning support, once she's in that category, she just blows everyone else away. There's, there's no other choice. Yeah, those are all, yeah, that's all really well um, articulated, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, um, I would agree with all the things you said. Um, I've earned supporting, but otherwise I agree with what you said. Um, she just exemplifies the Douglas Sirk style to a T, and she gets the assignments. 
Uh, that's as uh, simply as I can put it. Uh, put it. I wish I had more to say, but she just has such a luminous, erotic screen presence and portrays lust so effectively. Yeah, absolutely. She as a, she just leans into it um, with not abandon, but just with such trust with, for Cirque. And, of course, Cirque contributes so much to that performance, uh, the way that performance is what is cut against. Uh, I mean, that scene where she's dancing while her father is dying, um, it's the juxtaposition that makes that so uh, exhilarating and so, um, and so shocking. Um, it's, you know, obviously the, the work that she's doing uh, in that scene has so much energy, um, but it's, it's the way Cirque places that performance that really kicks it over the top. Sure. Um, this is from Free to Be Ukraine and Me. Um, thoughts on the wild defunct story category. Blacklisted winner Dalton Trumbo. The wrong high society nominated. Four non-English films in story and screenplay. Yeah, well, the wrong high society was that's just one of the great um stuff-ups in Oscar history. Um, I think Inside Oscar covers that um quite amusingly. And yeah, well, I touched on this the the foreign language films earlier. I think uh, there was such a um, an influx in uh, in the release of foreign language films in the mid fifties. The Academy, I think, very happy to uh, nominate them in in the writing categories. The writing, I think, often seen as as the strength of those films, often um, and those films being distributed by the major studios. The studios were very happy to see those films recognized in those writing categories, gave them cachet, gave them marketability, gave them prestige. Um, but I think they were very keen to restrict those films to nominations below the line, writing, costume design, and so forth. Um, I think Seven Samurai, I think gets a nomination in one of those below the line categories. Is it, um, was it costume design or was it um, art direction? Uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, um, costume design. Uh, but yeah, it's crazy, absolutely crazy. Um, there are some really crazy choices here. I mean, one of the other crazy choices we didn't talk about um, is black and white cinematography. If anyone wants to track down Stagecoach to Fury, that's got to be one of the most curious choices, perplexing choices in Oscar history for cinematography. But anyway, I, I digress from the question. How about you? What did you think about the wrong high society? Um, it's kind of comical. <laughs> it's one yeah, of those curios in film history. I'm in war history. Was like, what? Two high societies nominated? What's going on? One is like the Bowery Boys, and the other is a forgotten musical with Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly. Yeah, which wasn't actually original. Yeah, it just adds to the comedy. Yeah. Um, and that is a remake of the Philadelphia story. Um, they... But yeah, it's so strange. It's just strange. Um, so I guess with all that said, 
Um, do you have any final thoughts on this year as a whole? Uh, I think there's one other question on Carol Baker. Yeah, somebody um, that, said that, that's just um Ronaldo says that I had uh, just said. Just feel like saying that Carol Baker should have been a much bigger star and was robbed this year. Yeah, it's it's funny. I saw that. Sorry, I took that as a question. Yeah, she um of the five nominees, she was the only one that I matched the performance. I mean, obviously, I nominated Deborah Carr as well, but for a different performance. Um, yeah, she was. She should have been a much bigger star, unfortunately. Um, immediately after Baby Doll, Warner Brothers wanted her to do Too Much Too Soon, um, the, an adaptation of Diana Barrymore's best-selling um, book uh, about her life to play Diana Barrymore, and Carol Baker turned it down. She she felt she'd made a, um, a challenging uh, film in Baby Doll that had attracted a lot of attention Luella Parsons famously hated baby doll um and so she turned down too much too soon and got put on suspension I don't think she made a film for a whole year after baby doll and ironically too much too soon ended up going to Dorothy Malone and I think that she lost momentum right out of the gate from that nomination um should have become a bigger star but uh, didn't I think as a result very sadly Yeah, definitely for sure. Um, so do you have any final thoughts on this year as a whole? Uh, no, I think that that, uh, that covers, we've covered it all. Um, a, a lot of strong foreign language films and some interesting smaller American films um, make up the best of 1956. And uh, if I do say so myself, I think we've come up with... Uh, Two, two better lists than the Academy did. Uh, sometimes a lot of overlap, sometimes a lot of divergence, um, but hopefully uh, some people will discover some interesting films they hadn't seen before. I certainly did um, in preparing for this podcast. Yeah, sure. I'm not, yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess with all that said, um, Thank you so much, Brian, for um, agreeing to appear on this podcast with me. It was a good night here. Yeah, no, it's been fascinating, man. So how can we find you on social media? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Brian underscore Lindsay 72. That's Brian with an I. Um, I'm on Letterboxd as uh, Brian Lindsay. And um, you can... Uh, find my books uh, on Amazon, uh, just type in um, Brian Lindsay and uh, uh, or Film Awards uh, or Best Actress 19, uh, 2020 and uh, you'll hopefully find uh, my, my film history work uh, on Amazon. Nice. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Gabe the Joker. You can find me on uh, Instagram at Gabe Warren. You can find me on Letterboxd at Mr. Hulo. Um, be sure to follow the Ultimate Oscars page or account at Ultimate Oscars. I also have a Patreon account that I'll link in the description below. Um, be sure to rate and review this podcast for disability's sake and subscribe to your choice of server. Until the next episode, sit back and relax, cheers and enjoy, and thank you for listening to the Ultimate Oscars. <laughs>